I am joined by Scott Skirm, Executive Vice President in Fixed Income and Repo at Curvature Securities. Scott, great to have you back on Forward Guidance. It's, it's great to be back. I always enjoy doing your show. Scott, you are an expert in repo, the overnight and short-term lending markets. When you came on earlier in this year with Joseph Wang, that is exclusively what we talked about. And I want to ask you about it uh, later on in the show, maybe the last 10 minutes or so. But we've got uh, more pressing matters, Scott. You also, in addition to being an expert in the very niche world of repo, are the, an author about uh, a book called The Money News, John Corzine and the Collapse of MF Global. And Scott, I've been hearing the phrase MF Global a lot over the past month, and it has to do with the collapse of FTX, which uh, whose, whose downfall and demise, uh, though slight, maybe slightly more dramatic, was attributed to, to many of the same reasons. And uh, you, know, you wrote on Twitter, a financial company collapses and customer funds are missing. Sounds a lot like 2011. Uh, so tell us what motivated you to write that tweet and what were the similarities between the two situations that you, you first noticed? Well, I'd like to first start off and say that in no way would I consider myself an expert on crypto or FTX in particular. Um, however, you know, as you said, I'm, I, you know, if, if there's one thing in the world I can call myself an expert in, it, it is the repo market. And MF Global was, um, you know, very much related to the repo market and their collapse. And MF Global is still a very interesting story. And, you know, as you can see, it, you know, it's, it's almost kind of interesting the fact that, you know, these things come and go in cycles. You know, you, you, you have a company collapses and customer funds are missing. And then, of course, there's going to be new regulation and it's never going to happen again. But then, of course, it does happen in the Bahamas you know, uh, multiple times exponentially larger than MF Global. And so, um, you know, when I started, um, you know, reading about the um, uh, FTX situation in, in, in crypto, it was very, very interesting. You know, a, an exchange, which is somewhat like a broker dealer to some extent. Um, I mean, I, I, I think FTX probably had some type of market making um, business within it or within an affiliate. Uh, so, so, so they're making markets. They're they're taking risk. Um, you know, you know. Whereas MF Global risk, they were long and hedged. Um, I, I think FTX probably was just long crypto as much as they possibly could, um, and they, they probably didn't have any hedge. But but anyway, you know, getting back to it. Um, so w with the situation with MF Global, and there's a lot of moving parts with MF Global. But, but the main kind of takeaway is that MF Global got themselves into a repo trade, which, which had to do with, with sovereign government bonds. So it was the, the, the government bonds of Spain, Portugal, Italy, Belgium, Ireland. And John Corzine, who was the new chairman and CEO of the company, had come into the company to, to really ramp it up and make it into a mini Goldman Sachs. And he hired a lot of people. He gave signing bonuses to a lot of traders. And of course, you know, a, a, a trader coming in from MF Global, you know, coming into MF Global from Goldman Sachs or a big shop, they, they don't have the, the resources and the facilities and the customers to make that $10 million a year in, in their trading account. It's a, it's a lot harder. So what they found was after a period of time, all these new traders and all these new businesses were not making a lot of money. And John Corzine needed a way to make a lot of money. So 
Um, a friend of mine in London suggested a trade to him. He said, basically, why don't we buy European sovereign bonds on a short-term basis, one year at a time? We will fund them in LCH ClearNet, which is just like FICC, and it's kind of an arbitrage trade. They own a bond, they sold it to maturity, and and the interesting part was that you know these these bonds of of those countries at the time that quote they were called pigs, you know which was Portugal, Italy, Ireland, Greece, and Spain. Um, their yields were were abnormally wide compared to the to the financing costs. So MF Global got th themselves into this trade, which was a part of it was a repo trade, and they were making millions of dollars a month on the trade. However, the European debt crisis hit. They had margin calls. They started losing liquidity. Um, you know, as the trades went on, they had a really big trade that they couldn't get out of. It was, I think, 11 billion was the size of it at one point. And MF Global itself was losing money. And basically, they, the, the trades themselves were good, but they kept getting larger margin calls from because of the, the European debt crisis. And what happened was, in, in short, they lost their liquidity. They didn't have enough money to make margin calls. There was, uh, a, you know, a, a, a mess in their operations group and their operations group, their settlement people started using some of their customer money to make margin calls. And the idea was they figured they were making margin calls, you know, to, to, to counterparties and exchanges, and they would get margin in from customers to cover that margin. Um, but at the end of the day, when they're losing liquidity, they weren't getting any margin back from anybody. All the margin was going out. So when they had borrowed from their customer funds to fulfill a margin call, there was no money at the end of the day to put the money back into the customer accounts. And, you know, that was where the real, you know, kind of um, kind of fraud came in. Or I don't know if it's really called fraud, but 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 that that is, you know, being a. Being in a bad trade and losing money is, is generally not against uh, against the law, but you know using customer funds to, to finance your bad trade is against the law. Taking the customer funds, and, and in a nutshell, that's that's really kind of the, the the MF Global story. And if you look at FTX, from what I know so far, I won't be surprised if. They ended up having margin calls. They needed to come up with cash, you know, which might be coins. <laughs> they, they needed to come up with some coins and they were borrowing coins from potentially their customers to make margin calls and you know, to keep their business afloat. So, so, so I would say that's probably going to be what the, what, what the fine parallel is between the two. Right. So it's that use of customer funds uh, from what's called a SEG account. That is the ultimate uh, no, no in, in finance, in broker, in broker dealers. Um, so, so MF global, it was a, a brokerage for sort of macro products. So, Oh, you want to go long or short oil. You want to go long or short soybeans. That's in the physical world for commodities. Then you can also do interest rates, which are, you know, non-physical. And so customers were making those bets on the, on the platform and MF global, you know, uh, from, I learned from your book, they made money because the, the cash was there and they could, earn income from extremely risk-free, extremely low-risk securities such as uh, treasury bills, so like a, a three-month treasury bill or even, you know, an 18-day money market fund or something like that. And so when interest rates collapsed uh, in 2008, 
because of the global financial crisis, that actually really ate into their income. And so that's why part of the reason John Corzine, in addition to his sort of you know risk appetite, uh, went into these trades in European bonds. So when they, they first when, when MF Global first went into these repo to maturity trades, I know that's a, a key thing that you know I'd love for you to explain. What money were they using? Were they using their own money and not client funds? Yes. And, um, and, and, and a good point you had too, um, you know, which kind of adds, you know, as I mentioned, there, 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 is, there, there were a lot of moving parts to the MF Global story. But you know, one of the parts you mentioned too was you know, after the financial crisis where the Federal Reserve dropped overnight rates down to zero, if you're a futures FCM, let's say a few, call a futures broker, like that was MF Global's traditional business. Um, rule of thumb, is that the, at, I've worked at a futures broker before. So rule of thumb is that the commissions you make off of your customers pays your, your operating costs. And then the money you get investing your customer funds, you know, is your profit. Just general rule of thumb at a, at a futures FCM. So, so what happened was with MF Global was after the financial crisis, interest rates went down to zero so there's really no money to, you know, to, to make investing. So, you know, you have a company that's kind of like, you know, operating, you know, probably flat for, for a few years. And then they hired John Corzine and he was going to expand it and make it into a, you know, mini, mini Goldman Sachs. Um, getting back to your point with, in terms of the, the mechanics of the repo to maturity. Um, and, and I certainly went into it in my um, uh book about MF Global, the, the money news, which, which you held up before. Um, I'm actually in the process of just finishing another book called um, The Repo Market Shorts, Shortages, and Squeezes. Um, and, and I will, and it, it, it's about the repo market. Right, right now, there are no really good books on the repo market out there. There's the Marshall Stiggum's book, which was written in the 1980s. Um, there's a professor in London that wrote some very expensive repo handbooks are called. Um, and they're okay if you, you know, want to look at the math of the repo market. But, but, but my, my, my book that, that I just am about to finish, you know, goes through, you know, basically it's one part, let's say, textbook about the repo market, but, but don't let that scare anybody away because it's also one part stories and history. So it's kind of, you know, why we have tri-party, um, you know, why, why there's negative interest rates you know, where negative interest rates start and, you know, why securities disappear from the market and are squeezed anyway. So, so, so that's my plug for the new book. Uh, hopefully it'll be out in a couple of months. I'm a buyer of that book, uh, Scott. So we'll get into the repo uh, to maturity because uh, get into the mechanics. But first you said something yeah. I want to follow up on. You said, oh, broker dealers make their money by investing their client funds. I thought that the whole thing was that they're not supposed to invest those funds. Um, so futures FCMs. So, 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 so look at it this way. So if, if, if you're a hedge fund and you're trading futures, you've got to, um, the, the exchange requires some margin to be deposited at the exchange and the, the futures broker collects margin from their customer. Like let's say the hedge fund, um, the hedge fund gives the futures broker, let's say MF global, a million dollars in margin and the, um, the futures broker can take that cash and they can invest it in like a treasury bill and then deposit the, the treasury bill at the CME exchange, you know, to, to cover the margin. 
So basically, kind of there's a way you take the customer cash, you make it into a security where you earn interest, and you can also invest in repo also. Uh, but then you deposit it at the at the exchange, and then the futures FCM makes interest on that money. Now, big customers will have a split arrangement with you know their futures FCM, but but a lot of the time the futures FCMs don't pay any interest on the on on the futures margin, and and that's a big source. You know, look at some of the big futures FCMs that have, you know, let, let's say you got a billion dollars in customer seg funds. You know, if you're making, you know, uh, overnight interest rates three and three quarters, you're making three and three quarters on a billion dollars. That, that, that's a lot of money these days. It was it was zero back in 2011 with, with MF Global. But but now it's a significant amount of money. And as, as a side note, too. If you want to shop around and you want to buy a futures FCM right now, there's none for sale. They're uh, they're 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 too expensive now. They were really cheap two years ago, but um, but if you want to buy a futures FCM right now, they're 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 making a lot of money um, because their their interest rates are much higher. So at MF Global um, before 2011, for for a long time, they had a policy that their customer seg fund cash you know, might have been, their securities might have been deposited in that segregated account at the end of the day, but the previous day, then it, then the cash came out of the account into the broker-dealer's own account the, the, the next morning. So it was kind of like an omnibus account between the customer cash and the broker-dealer. So, so during that period of time when MF Global was man financial, before they were MF Global, um, they were a small futures broker and they were in fixed income um, and, you know, they they were not large. So 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 when they had this this uh, this omnibus account with with the customer funds and the 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 the, um, the the actual funds of the company, they would it would be cash management. There'd be money wires coming in, money wires going out, margin calls coming in, margin calls coming out. And then by the end of the day, their policies and procedures stated that. They had to have the customer funds back in the customer seg fund account by the end of the day, the full amount. And what's really interesting, too, is that, you know, when when you look at how reports are done in the financial industry is that they run an end of day report. So if the money came out at the beginning of the day, as long as it's at as long as it's on the report at the end of the day that shows money in that account, it doesn't look like it's been in and out of the broker dealer's proprietary account during the day. So, so, so if you looked on their, you know, if you looked on their financial reports, it just always showed the customer funds in the account, but they were being used during the day. So now fast forward um, to October of 2011 when MF Global was going down and they had already had um, significant amount of margin calls. I forget the, the, the exact amount. So, I mean, maybe they had $2 billion in capital. I'll just throw that number up. They're probably using a billion in capital to support their repo to maturity trade. And then they also had to leave margin at their clearing account at JP Morgan Chase. They had margin sitting in LCH ClearNet, in FICC, in DTC. So all these places you know, we're, we're using firm liquidity. And, and, and what happened was during that period of time, all of a sudden, MF Global printed a bad earnings report. They printed a bad earnings report. A bunch of customers took their cash out of the company 
and they were worried about, you know, something might go down at the company, it might not be good. Now, of course, you know, you know, when you have a run on the bank, like, you know, if you picture everybody lining up at, at the bank in the 1930s waiting to get their deposits, you know, if everybody, you know, uh, you know, like in uh, Bedford Hills, if everybody just takes out the amount of money that they need, the bank's fine. But if everybody wants all their money, there's not enough money sitting in the bank. So basically, you, you, you had a lot of liquidity being used up at MF Global for, for, for a lot of margin for, for different things. And then you had customers coming in and start taking their margin out and they had margin calls. And then what they found was at the end of the day, they didn't have enough money to put all that funds back into the customer seg fund account. They, they, they assumed they would because that's how they always operated. But there was so much margin that went out from customers closing accounts and things like that, that there wasn't enough money at the end of the day. So that's, that's what happened to the, to the customer funds. And then of course it happened the next day there was less money and then there was less money after that and less money after that. So it was kind of a downward spiral from there. You know, that was always, uh, you know, a, a crime. It was always a crime to, to, to use customer money. Um, kind of interesting too, there were really no consequences in MF Global. They, they you know, they, they, a lot of fingers were pointed at different people, um, you know, as to who was in charge of, of, of the customer funds and, and, and who moved it, the person who actually made the movement, she said her boss said it was okay. And her boss said, as per JC, uh, implying John Corzine. So, um, so, so, so in the end, no, no, nobody went to prison for that. Wow. Uh, it, the, the parallels are stunning. Uh, and I was just yeah. being hit by a wave of just the, the parallels as, as you were speaking. I have in front of me the letter that Sam Bakeman fried recently sent uh, employees of FTX, and he basically explained what happened. And he says, yeah, I did not realize the full extent of the margin position, nor did I realize the magnitude of the risk posed by a hyper-correlated crash. Uh, the loans and secondary sales were used to reinvest in the business and not for large amounts of personal consumption. Um, and yeah, he mentioned a run on the bank triggered by quote attacks in November that uh, basically forced uh yeah about, about five or six billion of liquidations and it's that they the, yeah for FTX they simultaneously did not imagine that all of their collateral would collapse in value at the exact same time as their depositors or, or clients would pull money at, at the exact same time so you you know they I, I think Sam right. is kind of Sam's kind of like, you know oh, my, my models, I ran my model and uh, it said that this would never happen. Right, exactly. Because in the risk model, you, you don't have everything happening at once. Um, you know, but, but then there, there is correlation because, you know, once a run starts, it cascades and, and it, it goes into, it, it, it spreads. And, and, and that's one thing, you know, with the financial markets, Every few years, you know, you have this, you know, kind of co correlation risk and, and uh, you know, it, it's, it, 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 it spreads and it builds. I mean, you know, you have March of 2020 with the COVID, you know, with the COVID crisis in March of 2021, people couldn't sell their U.S. treasuries. That was, that, that's crazy. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah. So, so, so that's what happens. You know, it, it happens to be, you know, there, the, the, well, the, the, there's a run on the, on, there's a run quote on the bank, you know, and a lack of liquidity, 
you know, be, be, because the, the markets decline so much, you know, that's that that prompts customers to close their accounts and, and pull their um, pull their cash out of the out of the exchange. Yes. One thing that really stood out for, for FTX is their complete lack of controls, their complete lack of records. You have an eight billion dollar quote oh fiat liability that oh i mislabeled it just on a you know a single cell on an express uh, spreadsheet i mean to be fair is way 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 worse at ftx i mean the, the bankruptcy new ceo who who literally took enron out of bankruptcy said this is the worst thing i've ever seen um they don't even know how many employees ftx has um but yeah, there yeah, are parallel yeah. there are parallels to mf global i'm, I'm reading from uh, your, your book mm-hmm. page 188 that there was a time that they thought a 540 million dollar uh liability it actually was a 150 million dollar asset so it sounds like those sort of poor record keeping and uh, uh inability to track the money was at mf global too right you know and i will tell you as i said i'm not an expert on ftx but when i've watched the news shows a couple of youtube videos i thought were pretty helpful um i i look at them like this is a bunch of kids you know, it was a bunch of kids managing all this money. And of course, you know, it was, it was promoted that way because the idea is that, you know, these tech kids, you know, re, you know, know how to, you know, build these businesses and stuff. But, but you know, there, 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 there's a core old business of, you know, customers executing trades and, and, and protecting their money and everything. And, and, and I, remember, um, I remember one job where I worked, it was part of ING Bank back 20 years ago, my boss there, we, we were getting into a new business. And, um, and, and I said, well, I'm starting this business. Why don't we put me as the business head? And my boss said, no, they, they like, FINRA likes to see a lot of gray hairs, you know, when somebody's like looking after the business. So uh, and I didn't really have as many gray hairs back then. That was 20 years ago. So, so it, 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 it's so true. I mean, you know, that probably would have been a, a much different thing if, you know, it, had they hired an experienced CEO or CFO and compliance officer and had somebody, you know, with with, you know, uh, long years of markets experience, it, it it certainly wouldn't have hurt. Yes, I, I think the team there was very lacking a total lack of gray hair. And I also think their uh, head of regulation or compliance officer, he used to work at a online poker company that scammed people. Uh, so definitely, yeah. <laughs> definitely some personnel issues uh, at the firm. Yeah. Um, one thing I was li- last night, I was listening to some Sam Bankman Freed interviews from 2021. Uh, you, and folks listening to this have to remember that up until a month ago, people in crypto, as well as people, mainstream pe- non-crypto people, sort of worshipped Sam Bankman Freed, thought he was a genius. I, I will admit I was bamboozled by, I did not do my own due diligence, but I listened to the due diligence of others, which turned out to be incorrect. Um, or no one did due diligence. I just, I just sort of said, oh, the people who, uh, you know, everyone else respects them. And I think a lot of people made the same mistake as I did. Um, he, so in 2021, he, in, insane quote, he, he says, and this is the exact quote, he says, I think leverage in crypto is actually makes crypto safer. Uh, so that's an exact quote. And then he also talks about cross-margining, a term that I have a very shaky understanding of. I'm, I'm sure you know a lot about that. What is cross-margining? He basically was saying all these other exchanges, they, have, they don't allow cross-margining, uh, but we do, and we have superior risk metrics. So do, what does the, that phrase mean, and, and what might he have meant by that? 
So traditionally in, you know, outside of the crypto space, and it, it probably means the same thing in the crypto space, but, you know, I, I know the broker dealer space and in the fixed income space. So cross margining, you know, if it, let, let's say you've got a, a customer in, in fixed income, and this is related to MF Global also too, um, who's long a hundred million treasury to your notes. And, you know, if you're going to margin them on those treasury to your notes, you might like, like the, the, the true risk might be a quarter of 1% would, would be an appropriate margin amount, maybe three-eighths of 1%. Um, but now let's say they also have in their futures account, um, they're short the two-year futures contract. And let alone that they're, 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 they're not the exact same implied treasury between the two, but let's just say that they're, they're along the two-year treasury note, they're short the two-year treasury futures, and the futures... Um, account, you know, charges three eighths of 1%, you know, for, for, for the margin. Now, if you look at, you know, both of those trades separately, you know, you've got long 100 million, short 100 million. If you look at them both separately, you, you know, they're the, the, um, the margin is three eighths of a percent on either side. But if you combine them together, there's very little risk. It, it's a spread risk between the two markets. And maybe the real margin amount should be about a one sixteenth of one percent. Um, so basically, cross margining is you know you you look at you know sometimes it's could, in equities world it's kind of called portfolio margining. Um, you know in, in in fixed income world and you know you you look at multiple products and you margin them based on like their their portfolio or you know all their positions together. Okay, so you're taking advantage of a spread between two things that are very similar. So if you go long one thing and short the other, the idea is your risk is mitigated. You know, maybe in crypto you're long, you know, you're 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 well, long um, ether and you're short, you know, Solana or something like that or something like that. So so you kind of say that okay, I'm long one crypto, I'm short another you know that there, there, there should be some correlation. Now, of course, you know there's a correlation until there's not, and that that's what people remember. Um, I, yeah. I still remember back in the 1990s there was this there was this hedge fund. Um, uh, what was it? Um, um, I can't remember offhand, but they had a great trading strategy. It was um, it was in the mortgage-backed securities market, and they were long IOs, so they were long interest-only portion of, of the mortgage-backed securities. They were short POs, principal-only, or, or no, actually, wait. Um, that was long-term capital management, right? Yeah, Askin, Askin, that's right. I think they were long the IOs and long the POs and short the bonds you know, against those. So, you know, a bond is interest, <laughs> a bond is principal, and you know, so so they're 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 along the, the two components, and then they're short the actual bond. And you'd think that, hey, how, how can that lose money? You're you're long and short the, the 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 same components. But when the market breaks down and there's no buyers, then the spreads widen, and there's nothing you can do because your prime broker says, you know, even though they're you put them together, they're the same security. Well, right now, the bid side is this and the offered side is this, and you owe us a million dollars in margin, pay up. Right. And I suppose this is a conjecture, but you know, I, I have studied the 
balance sheet, if you can call it that, that Sam Bankman Free provided on uh, mm-hmm. no, based on November 10th. And there was like no Bitcoin there. There was not a lot of uh, Ethereum there. It was a lot of Solana and a lot of essentially tokens that he had invented or he really had invested a, a lot in. And maybe he's saying, oh, I'm exposed to crypto. You know what I'll do? I'll short Bitcoin. Uh, I'll hedge mm-hmm. my long FTT position by shorting Bitcoin. But the problem is, you know, Bitcoin is a decentralized network. You know, millions of people around the world think it's the hardest money ever. Whereas FTT was a token that he's kind of conjured from thin air, and uh, you know, he and his empire owned the majority position of it. And uh, you know, incredibly thin volumes, incredibly thin volumes. This is another thing um, that I th- actually think it's far worse than MF Global in, in, in this terms. Of they were valuing on their balance sheet assets that. Uh, were a hundred times larger than the daily traded volume of the entire token. So yeah, in some cases, 300 times larger. Uh, so it was a very thinly traded to- token, uh, kind of somewhat of a manipulated market, if you can call it that. Uh, if you look at the flows, it was very circular. A- FTX was lending it to Alameda, who was lending it to, I'll go back to FTX. It was, a, it was very circular. I see that in, in my market too. They're, we've got customers that come in and you know, they're, they're, they're short 700 million or something and, you know, and 200 million trades, you know, in, in the broker markets every day. And, and they, they want like a market price. And we're like, <laughs> sorry, we'll, we'll work with you. We'll do our best, you know, to get you done. But, you know, we, we, we just can't offer, you know, like right at the market, you know, and, and, and only a fraction of what your what your short trades every day. Um, I'll, I'll throw something into um, back. A little over a year ago, I had an, I, I had an idea that I pitched to, um, to some of our clients and I wanted to go short the stable coins um, because I felt that the fact that they weren't very transparent, um, I think they're, maybe they're more transparent now, but, but I saw that they weren't transparent and, and there's you know, a little look on the internet. There, there, there's a lot of questions of of where where that money actually is when you you know when, when you give them cash in a stable coin and and we 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 talked about it but we couldn't figure out you know we 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 look you know fixed income people we we like to look at things as spreads mm-hmm. I mean you're long something you're short something you're long cash you're short futures long one treasury you're short another that's you know kind of how you trade the treasury market um, and we couldn't figure out what to what to own against it. And, and so, so, so we eventually kind of gave up on the trade. Now, of course, you know, uh, one of those stable coins, which, which one, Luna, ended up collapsing six, yeah. six months later. Yeah, um, yeah. Ter- Terra collapsed. And uh, yeah, L- Luna was the utility token that increased in value the more that uh, right. when, 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 money, when excess money was flowing into Terra and it would have gone above a dollar, that money was going to burn i.e buy back luna so that's why luna exploded higher luna is now worth zero terra i think also worth, worth zero but they they changed it they, it was so bad they had to change the name of the token so yeah you were exactly yeah. right about that um scott uh the i, I think it, it is quite hard to, to short those i actually was listening to sam bankman fried an interview from 2021 and he said look yeah. i think tether's fine uh but tether tether is the largest stable coin which now still trades at a dollar and you know mostly has stayed in that range. Um, although, you know, they do not have an audit. They have an attestation about what assets they actually hold. Um, and interestingly enough, Tether does a lot of business with Alameda, or at least it used to. But Sam said, you can bet on whether Tether or not is going to be a thing. So let's say, in, in, you know, instead of 
Terra collapsing, it was Tether that collapsed, and you had wisely taken out a short position on Tether, so you would have made money, but you would have made money on the FTX exchange, so you actually would have not been able right, to yeah. withdraw. Right, yeah, think of that too. Uh, that, that, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Um, that, that's ironic. Yes. Uh, so this spread trade, I think, is really... Oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, Scott, when you said whatever client, you know, I don't want you to disclose anything, but they were short something that's 700 million and 200 million was mm -hmm. trading. Are we talking about treasuries here? Yeah, I was in the treasury market. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that is, you know, every single treasury security is different and a seven and a half year note is different than an eight year, which is different than a nine year, but it's all part of this. It all, every single treasury has a treasuriness quality to it. Whereas uh, in crypto, FTT is really nothing like Bitcoin, you know? So it's, it's, it's right, way worse. Right. Um, uh, but, but Scott, okay, so this spread issue, I think, is on full display with MF Global's repo to maturity trade. So what were those trades, number one, of going long certain something, going short the other? And that's my first question. The second question is, what's the mechanism of repo to maturity? Okay. And um, so, so I'm going to give you a little, um, a little background. It, 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 it should not be too technical. So in the history of the fixed income markets and the treasury market, uh, we used to do these things called repo to maturity. And basically, it was always done with very short-term U.S. treasuries, like a treasury bill. So let's say that you had a customer that had a six-month bill and that they wanted to um, sell it to you. And so you could buy it, but then, you know, what if the six month uh, repo market, so in other words, you can loan that security for six months to, to somebody, um, was at a lower rate than the actual yield of the bill. So in other words, you can buy the treasury bill at, uh, at, at one yield, let's call it three and a half percent. And then as it turns out, the, the six month term repo market is trading at 340, so you can, lend that bill in the repo market, kind of like selling it to maturity, and then you've locked in 10 basis points. And that was a big trade in the treasury market for a long, long time. If, if you know, it basically, in a way, it was kind of like an arbitrage between, you know, actual treasury bill yields or short coupons, what happened with very short coupons, um, and the repo market kind of keeps, you know, short-term rates, you know, in, in balance. And, and those trades still exist. People still do those trades. Um, they, they're out there over in Europe sometimes, uh, sometimes in the U.S., but, you know, there's a lot of people ready to jump on that arbitrage. So, so traditionally, that was called a repo to maturity trade. And how the accounting worked for it was that the accounting firms recognize that as what they call a true sale. So in other words, if you owned a treasury bill and repoed it to maturity, the accounting firms would would account for that, lack of a better word, as a true sale. So that they would go on your, it would go off your books. So you own the bill, you, you repoed it to maturity. It's taken off your balance sheet because they call it a true sale and it's a locked in profit. And even mm -hmm. though it's really sitting there as a, you know, with, with a repo, the, the accounting firms call it a, a true sale. Therefore, it comes off your balance sheet. So, and that was always done for years and years in the US Treasury market with, with you know, Treasury securities that are AAA rated risk-free. So, so basically you're dealing with risk-free securities. So that trade's been around. People have done it over in Europe. 
And now what happened was you had the invention of the euro. And then all of a sudden countries like Belgium and Italy and Spain, they're not on their own currencies anymore. They're, they're on a hard, a hard currency called the euro. And people started doing, traders started doing repo to maturity trades in, in, in European. And it made it much, much easier, you know, when, with all these countries that were on the, were on the euro. Now, when all these countries were fiscally stable and the yields of their six-month bills and bonds and notes, you know, were all relatively similar to um, um, the, the rates in, the, in other money markets, like, like the repo market, there's really no arbitrage. But then what happened was, as the European debt crisis was creeping up, then all these countries, the, the pigs as we call them, were selling more and more debt. You know, basically, they, 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 these countries were addicted to spending. They, 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 they couldn't do austerity. That was, you know, a, a big term 10 years ago. And they kept issuing more and more debt to, to pay their, you know, kind of generous um, spending budgets. And, you know, as they issued more and more debt, their yields went higher and higher. Mm -hmm. So then when you got to the point, so, so let's say that we're using the same example as before, that the six-month rate in the repo market was 340 and a treasury, you know, which is AAA rated is, is at a yield of three and a half. But now let's say that the Belgium, you know, six month bill is at three and three quarters and Italy is at 380 and Ireland is at 360 and Portugal is at 390. So all of a sudden, you know, all these, you know, sovereign country debt, because they issued so many securities, their yields went high and their yields went high it basically created an arbitrage in the repo to maturity market. So MF Global went and using the same rates as before, they went and bought, you know, one year or six month Portugal, Portuguese bonds. And what did I say? They were at 390, mm -hmm. you know, and bought, bought them, owned them at 390, then loaned them to maturity, repoed them to maturity at a 340. And they were locking in 50 basis points there. Um, so Scott, just, so they, just to be clear, so you're you're this is exploiting the spread between a six month Portuguese yield to maturity and the six month Portuguese repo rate. It is not exploiting the spread between Portuguese the six month Portuguese bill and the six month German Bund yield, right? Correct, correct. It, it, it's basically buying the Portuguese bill for six months and then repoing it in the repo market for for six months. You know, and, and, and of course, the, the, the repo rates are a money market rate, you know, that, that kind of follows, you know, what the, um, the, the ECB is doing. It's kind of, you know, prices, you know, you know, where, where their overnight will be, rate, rate, rates will be for six months. So, so in a way, they're, 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 diff they're two different markets. And when you have two different markets, there's potentially an arbitrage between the two. But, you know, what was unique, and this may be happening again in the next few years, but what was unique was that there was a, you know, a lot of issuance of European debt, spreads widened, and when spreads widened, there, there, there was an opportunity in there. So what happened was, you know, MF Global bought all sorts of Ireland, Belgium, Italy, um, Spain, Portuguese bonds. They stayed away from Greece because that, that was, everybody knew that was a mess. Um, they bought all these bonds, 11 billion of them, and they repoed them to maturity. So they kind of had an arbitrage locked in and, you know, they were making, uh, 
I, I forget the exact numbers. They might have been making, they were making a lot of money. I think it was like $25 million a month or something, you know, mm-hmm. just on this trade. And, and here's the sweet part about it. As a repo to maturity, the accounting firm took it off their balance sheet. So it didn't look like they were in these trades at all because it was a repo to maturity, which was an off balance sheet, um, uh, true sale at the wow. time. So, but it still, um, this trade still existed. It just it was, did not appear yeah. on something an investor would read. You just had to go beyond the right. Like you can look in the notes and you can see, hey, we've got 11 billion European debt that's financed to maturity. So, you know, so, so then of course with MF Global, a lot of events happened where eventually the FINRA, the, the regulatory agency in the US and, um, and their the accounting, and MF Global's accounting firm said, oh, Hold on here. Yeah, you got eleven billion of these things. They're they're not risk free. There's obvious risk here. That can't. What be is that risk, Scott? What what is that? What is the risk there? Well, I so so the number one. So so there's the risk that MF Global suffered, and then there is the obvious risk. So the obvious risk is that Portugal defaults and doesn't pay their debt. Um, you know, or any one of those countries defaults and doesn't pay their debt, which is an unlikely outcome. Most likely they would default. They wouldn't pay their debt for a few months. The ECB would put together a, a plan, you know, to, 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 to save them and finance them. So, 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 so you know, maybe, maybe the real risk there was that, you know, they, the, 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 the debt might not be paying for, for, for a short period of time. Now, so, so that was one risk. That is like the default risk. The, then there's a liquidity risk, and this is what Mar- this is what MF Global really dove deep into, and, and they, they 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 had their you know hand slapped pretty hard on this one. Was that if the European debt crisis occurred like it did right after they got into this trade, then the value of the bonds were were declining. So so the the price of the bonds were going down, but they had already repoed them to maturity, but when they repoed them to maturity, those trades were in the European Central Clear and Counterparty, which is like an exchange, like LCH ClearNet. So, or think of the futures exchange. So, you know, even though they're, they're, they're bought and sold, they still have to pay margin to finance the bonds. So then as the value of the bonds went down, mm-hmm. LCH ClearNet kept calling them for more and more margin. And then as the European debt crisis you know, began the the margin percentages went up because the markets were more volatile. So then all of a sudden, and I forget the numbers in the book that was a while ago, but as I said, you know, one point they're paying at least $500 million to LCH ClearNet, you know, to cover the the margin. And of course they would get all that money back when the bonds matured, but they just had to hold out until the bonds matured. And with MF Global, a large percentage of their repo to maturity trade matured in December and they went bust in October. Like, like they were really just two months away. FTX had the same issue, but instead of two months, it was two years or in some cases, five years. It had this token called SRM, which it was valuing at its balance sheet uh, a month ago at about $5 billion. But that's the token where literally they had 300 times more than the daily traded volume. 99% of that token was locked up and it had a vesting schedule or a um, inflation schedule that it would be public for a number of years. So 
they were valuing assets and taking liquid uh, you know, deposits that could be called at any time against assets that were five years in duration. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you hit it on the nose here with, with all these parallels. Like, you know, with me, I, I kind of saw, okay, company collapses, money missing, that reminds me of MF Global. I, 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 think, I, I think you see a lot of the, 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 the depth related to the two. Um, it's a it, very interesting, interesting story. And to tell you the truth, I, I, I didn't think an MF Global was going to happen again. Um, you, you know, they, you know, after MF Global happened, the uh, FINRA and the SEC and the CFTC came down really hard. Like they, there's very tough policies and procedures for moving customer seg cash around. Um, and, you know, I, I've, I've worked at broker dealers since then. And, you know, I, I've, I've managed seg fund cash before myself. Um, and you know, you, you cannot touch, touch, you cannot intermingle anything, um, in, in terms of the, the, the seg fund cash, they're really tight rules in the U S but then of course, not in the Bahamas. Exactly. You were right. It did <laughs> not happen in traditional finance, American capital markets, but it happened in the Bahamas. And it was so obscene that there was $8 billion that I don't, and this is a theory that is based on a Twitter DM that Sam Bacon Fried sent to a journalist. But he pretty much says that $8 billion that Alameda owed FTX, there's a likely chance that it never was at FTX. So when you wired money saying, oh, I'm going to put my money in FTX because I want to go long Bitcoin or I want to go short Tether or I want to go long Solana, short Ethereum, that money went to Alameda. And this is another parallel, which is that the cohabitation of a hedge fund prop shop within a brokerage and an exchange uh, yeah. Alameda Research was a hedge fund that Sam Bankman fried started first. Then he launched FTX. And on paper, they were separate entities. And he technically stepped down as CEO from Alameda Research. But it's, it's quite clear now that they, they were the one and the same. And if Al- Alameda booked a loss, it was FTX's loss because FT- Sam Bankman fried was going to make sure that they covered that loss. In the traditional financial world, there's some of that. Like Goldman Sachs has a prime brokerage business. They also have a large proprietary trading shop. After the great financial crisis, it's much less, but there's some amount of it that can occur without everything blowing up. But within MF Global, I think that was another thing where you had this kind of sleepy brokerage business that uh, John Corzine wanted to inject a lot of the sort of high finance profits into by importing teams from Goldman Sachs and other uh, trading shops. And it's, it's tough when you have a brokerage business but on the other side, you have people who are trying to make as much money as they can trading. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that was that that was with with MF Global. You had basically a prop shop that was, you know, layered on top of a futures FCM. And um, and, and you can kind of see like, you know, at banks with Dodd-Frank, um, you know, they, they, they've taken a lot of the uh, what was it called the Volcker rule where they took a lot of um, prop trading out of the banks. Now, of course, MF Global was a broker dealer, not a bank, and not subject to Dodd Frank. So, you know, in a way, there's there, there, there's a loophole there. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I mean, you know, I, I would think, but you know, a lot of the banks also they they have an asset management group, and you know, they have hedge fund affiliates. So, you know, it's it's. You know, bank, bank, banks can have prop trading businesses also, but, mm-hmm. you know, it can't be inside the bank. Right. Before I, I pick your brain just about the, the repo market right now, 
Uh, I want to throw two more parallels at you between FTX and uh, MF Global. One is a stubborn CEO with political connections and a heavy risk appetite who is surrounded by yes men. And the second is the potential acquisition by a savior that is later terminated. Binance was rumored to buy out FTX and rescue FTX. It didn't. MF Global had a similarly same fate. Tie a bow on the story for us, Scott. What happened? Who was the potential savior for MF Global and why didn't it go down and MF Global had to declare bankruptcy? So if I remember correctly, there were a couple suitors for MF Global. And of course, the first one I think was JC Flowers or JC Flowers might have already been an investor. And yeah, and he, he was. Yeah. Flowers, I, I don't remember his actual first thing, but he was a Goldman. He was a Goldman guy. And, you know, you know, even, you know, if, if you look in the book Too, Too Big to Fail, yep. you know, when Lehman was going down, you know, he was like in the room trying to, you know, get a good deal for, for, for Lehman Brothers. So, so I think J.C. Flowers was, was part of it. Um, interactive Brokers also. Um, Thomas Pettifree, I think, is, is the pronunciation. I, um, I did speak with him on the phone about their, you know, um, um, you know looking at MF Global. And he, he's a very smart man. He basically said, you know, we, we, you know, we had a team, we looked at, you know, some, some of their, um, you know, like their, their financials. And he's like, and we didn't want it after that. Um, so, 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 but that, but that typically happens. And to tell you the truth, you know, you know, with my experience in the, in the industry, which, which goes back a, a lot of years is that, you know, anytime a company's going down there, there's, there's parts of it that are good. And, you know, people on the street realize that there's going to be some good businesses there and somebody might be out there to buy the whole business. Um, but sometimes you can kind of pick the carcass, you know, once it's, 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 it's gone. So, you know, there, there might be a metals trading group there mm-hmm. and, you know, you, you know, you, you go in and you just hire the people instead of, you know, having the, um, you know, having the, the legacy company that's got legal problems. So, um, so, so, so in the end, I, I know a few people looked at MF Global and, and, and nobody wanted to touch it, but I can tell you that, you know, I, I'm, I'm most, uh, you know, 95% sure that the, the good businesses at MF Global got picked up right away and, and moved to other places. And so MF Global had to declare bankruptcy because there was no suitor. How much money did, what percentage of their funds did clients get back? Did, did investors get wiped out? Did bondholders get wiped out? Where in the stack was it? Was it clients, bondholders, stockholders? Was it was it different? And also, how long did it take for this to get settled out for people to get their money back? So, so this is kind of interesting too because and and, and you know when I started working on that MF Global book was was a couple months after they went went under. Um, I probably started working on it in you know um, March or April or May um, after they went excuse me bust in October. And I, I started looking at it and, and you know, reading um, regulatory filings and things like that and, you know, listening to testimony. And, you know, the, the bottom line is the money was never really missing. It was always somewhere. So um, basically what happened in the scramble to meet margin calls, you know, that, that customer cash ended up, you know, going somewhere to meet a margin call at... LCH ClearNet, FICC, DTC, JP Morgan Chase. So, and then once MF Global went bust, everybody clamped down on their money and held it as much as they could because, you know, there are potential legal proceedings 
you know, with somebody who's dealing, doing business with MF Global. So, so everybody held on to their cash and that cash existed somewhere. So it's really then, then a matter of kind of like mopping it up and getting the cash back. Once they got the cash back, um, all the customer money was eventually repaid. Um, it was, it, it took a few years and, and, and I forget, I forget the number like 80, 90% was paid within a couple of years. Um, and then after that, the um, MF Global did have some bonds that were trading. And I remember within a couple of years, within a year or so, like a lot of the MF Global bonds were trading at, let's say ballpark 50 cents on the dollar. So the market kind of expected that there was money left over and the bondholders would be paid, but not the, the full amount. So the equity was wiped out, um, but, but then there was money left to, to pay at least some of the debt. Um, but all the customer funds were eventually repaid. Wow, that, that is optimistic. And I hope that is the case for all clients with FTX. Uh, I have a fear that it won't be true. And I, I think F MF Global was a disaster story for sure. And for people who want to know the details, they got to read the book. But no, the you. money noose for FTX, I think, was way tighter because they did things that MF Global did not do. They had $8 billion that literally was never in their bank account. It was in their sister bank accounts. They essentially created securities out of thin air and valued them at market prices, even though it was a ridiculously uh, thin market price. And some of the tokens wouldn't even start to exist until years later. But I, 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 get, I get what you mean. And, and um, yeah, it's true. It, it, it's so much... You know, it, it's more complicated in a way in, in, in the crypto world. And it's, you know, it, 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 it's not as uh, transparent in the crypto world. And I think there's going to be people digging around in this company for, for a long time, um, you know, trying to figure out where, where everything went. Hmm. Right. All right. Well, Scott, thank you so much for, for sharing your insights on MF Global. So that was, you know, your uh, your ho hobby is writing excellent books about finance, but your day job is working in the repo market. And uh, what are you seeing now? Where's November twenty third? Repo rates, re repo rates. Uh, how would you characterize the repo market at, at this time? What are the new de new developments, and what what do so, you have your eye on? So, so I'm going to talk about a, a, a kind of a large concept with the repo market and. You know, and anybody out there that wants to learn a little bit more on the repo market and my thoughts, I, I put out a white paper about a month ago called The Fed's Dilemma. And um, it, it's floating around the market. Um, Zero Hedge picked it up and published the entire thing on their website. And I, last time I checked, there were like 50,000 views. Hmm. So, um, so so that, that might be a good thing to, to, to kind of summarize because I think you know, in, you know, in something that people can relate to, um, you know, that's that, that, that's kind of the most interesting part about the repo right repo market right now. So, so, so here's how I see it. Um, right now, we're doing what they call is balance sheet runoff um, with with at the Fed, and and the Fed accumulate accumulated an 8.9 trillion dollar balance sheet, you know, over the last few years, um, basically to finance government spending. I'm not going to put blame on, you know, who, who spent all the money, but but a lot of money was spent in Washington. And if you spend a lot of money in Washington, you have to issue Treasury securities to finance that spending. Luckily, they had the Federal Reserve out there willing to buy the Treasury securities and take them all out of the market. Now, the mechanics of it is that when the Fed 
buys securities and puts them in their portfolio, they pay for those securities somehow. It's called money creation, and, and effectively they create money out of thin air. Um, so, so as the Fed was buying securities for the QE SOMA uh, portfolio, they were putting cash into the market. So, so at this point, um, if you think that Milton Friedman um, was, was right or even a little bit of right, um, and he said, I, let me try to get the quote right, um, that inflation is always a monetary phenomena, something like that. Yeah. Um, so, so, so if you believe that, you know, more money floating around the market at least causes some inflation, you kind of realize that the fact that the SOMA portfolio is so large means that there's a lot of money in the market right now in the financial system. And it's my belief that, the, um, the price of oil, um, supply chains, uh, the, 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 those are somewhat excuses as to why we have inflation. I think I, I think the the number one reason why we have inflation right now is is because of the uh, size of the Fed's balance sheet and the amount of liquidity that they put into the market over the last few years. And the, the Fed has a dilemma right now because if they take those securities out of the Fed's portfolio and put them in the market, something's going to break. So you've got balance sheet runoff. And the Treasury is still issuing a lot of money. And you have about $175 billion of securities coming into the market every month via the Treasury or the Fed. And that's a lot of securities for the market to absorb every month. And at some point, something's going to break because you can't have that many securities coming into the market. So, so, so therein, in my view, lies the Fed's dilemma is that they want to shrink the balance sheet because they've got to control inflation. But if they shrink the balance sheet, they're going to be putting a lot of supply into the market. And if they put that much supply in the market, something's going to break. Um, so, so that's if you're going to call. So my long term prediction right now is is the Fed kind of has a choice. Either they're going to control inflation or they're going to keep the market from breaking. Hmm. And yeah. And, and you and, think and quantitative tightening and, and balance sheet reduction is just as important or, or maybe even more important than interest rates? In my view, um, the Fed tightening rates um, is a natural part of the market. We've, we've been through it ups and downs many, many times before. Um, so it, it's something that happens. Rates tighten. Uh, you know, it slows down the economy. And, and that's, that's a natural mechanism of, of, of the financial markets. It's balance sheet runoff was only tried once before. And uh, eventually the, the repo market blew up in September 2019. And at that point, they only put $670 billion worth of securities in the market. And right now we're going to put, you know, so right now the, 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 the Fed and the Treasury is running at a pace of putting a trillion dollars of securities in the market every six months. So, um, so, so, so I would say, you know, if, if, if you know, you know, my, my, my view, and of course there's more details in my paper and I'm sure you could just, someone can look up on zero hedge and, and, and find the paper, you know, look up my name. Um, but, um, but, but I, I, I think that's something, and you know, maybe in six months you can have me back and, and I can say, Hey, remember six months ago, you know, <laughs> People need to re need to watch your podcast more because you're, yeah. they're getting good information here. Um, yeah. 
So, so that's kind of my, my, my biggest prediction and stuff with, with the markets um, is, is, that, is that that's a Fed's dilemma. There we go. Uh, thanks for explaining that, Scott. So in terms of the Fed can either stop inflation or fight inflation by continuing to do quantitative tightening, balance sheet runoff, or uh, they can um, uh, not, have, not have something break. But they're going to have something break. So when I hear something break, there's sort of kind of four things. Number one, the economy breaking. That's commonly called a recession. We, we all know what that looks like. Number two is risk assets performing poorly. So that's equities performing poorly, crypto performing poorly, uh, high-yield bonds selling off, investment-grade uh, high-yield bonds spreads widening significantly. So those are bonds, but they're risk bonds because they have credit risk. They're tied to private companies. But then uh, door number three is what we saw in March 2020, very rare, where the treasury market itself breaks down and there's no liquidity there. And you know, even though you're headed into a giant recession, bonds sell off uh, and yields go up instead of fall. Uh, we saw that in September with the UK market. And door number four is your world, the repo world, which is what happened in seven, September 2019. So how are you sort of weighing the probabilities of which is the most likely case? You know, if the Fed continues QT and if you're right that something will break, what do you think it will be? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I will know before it happens, I think. Um, but, 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 but at this point, uh, you know, so, something's going to break and, you know, your, your, your four, your four things are, are really spot on. I, I think it'll be something, it'll be something in there. And, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that some problems are going to arise and it all goes down to the Fed's dilemma of which one, which choice are they're, they're, they're going to make. Now, of course, um, if anyone wants to keep, if anybody's involved in the repo market and needs repo financing, you know, they've got my name, you know where to find me. Um, and, you know, I'm, I, I provide a lot of information on the repo market to our clients and, and, and I think they're better off, um, you know, in, in their financing positions because they, you know, um, they, they get a lot of good information that they can't get in um, other places. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. I, I your uh, daily reports, which I you know, whenever I interview, I'm lucky enough to get access to, are excellent, fantastic charts. The the repo market is financed with cash, not cash you know in your wallet or a bank deposit, but bank assets, which is like the liabilities of the Federal Reserve, which is how they uh, what they do with quantitative easing. So, when quantitative tightening, the amount of money in the banking system is going down. That money is what's used to finance the biggest market in the world, the repo market. Are you what does what does repo stress look like? Yeah, can you just walk us through, you know, what a September twenty nineteen looks like, and then you know is that is that on your, your bingo card of, of the of the year? And then what what's the what is the health of the repo system as you see it right now in mid November? Yeah, so I think the repo the repo system is very healthy right now. Um, you know, and, and there, there's more supply coming into the market, and bank balance sheets are going to be tighter. Um, going forward, because you know banks and broker dealers like like my company are interme- intermediaries, and you know we're, we 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 finance positions in the U.S. Treasuries in the repo market for for our clients. Um, so the repo market's functioning just now, just just right right now. Um, year end will be kind of interesting. We'll see if there's some tightness in in, in bank balance sheets. Um, and, and and there's there's no problems at, at any point. Also, with the September 2019 repo market panic, as I called it, um, I actually put a white paper out um, about that, which Zero Hedge picked up also. 
So you can, you know, um, you know, probably search Zero Hedge and, and find that. So if, it's, if you want a lot of details about the repo market pan panic of September 2019, um, it, it is out there online. Um, but, but other than that, the, the repo market is going to be very interesting. You know, the, the repo market is, you know, the, it's, it's, you know if, if the financial industry is the, um, you know, a part of the engine of the, you know, uh, economy, the, the repo market is, uh, is the grease that lubricates the engine because, you know, it, when, when you can borrow and lend um, cash and borrow and lend securities pretty seamlessly, you know, it's very easy to, 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 to um, uh, buy and short sell. And, you know, it, it's very easy to have very, you know, liquid and, and tight spreads in the market. And, and it, it, it's very healthy for the market to have a, um, that have a repo market that's, that's, that's very uh, seamless and, and, and liquid. Um, and, and there's no problems in the repo market at this point, but, but I, I, I fear down the road there's going to be some issues. What about the reverse repo facility from the Fed, which has, I think, over $2 trillion in it? Why was that so big? And uh, will that money that's, that's kind of the $2 trillion locked in the reverse repo facility, can that kind of rescue the illiquidity in the bond market? So I, you know, I try to get out of the weeds. I try to stay out of the weeds and, and you want to put me in the weeds. Um, I'm happy to go in the weeds. You know, it's, it, it, it's okay. I just, you know, don't, don't want to lose too many. I don't want to lose too many of your listeners. Um, we got the end. That's know, why at the end of the only only true fans are here. You know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, yeah. Exactly. Someone really must like the repo market to to, to be here this long. Um, so so here's what here's what is going to happen. I, I you know in the repo market over the next few months, and it's already starting to happen now. So so the RRP facility got as high as maybe two point three trillion or so. And, and what the RRP facility is, is that it's a holding tank for liquidity. So because the Fed did too much QE and they took too many securities out of the market, injecting too much cash into the market, money market funds, all sorts of investors ended up, you know, with a lot of cash. So, so, so ironically, um, the RRP facilities where Cash investors like money market funds, bank investment portfolios, they they can give cash to the Fed and get paid an interest rate on that cash. So what the Fed did was they bought too many securities, injected too much cash into the market. The market had all this cash, but it was too much. So they ended up giving the cash right back to the Fed and investing it at the Fed. So, you know, really, when you look at it, you know, it's a clear sign that the Fed, you know, kept QE going way too long, probably $2 billion worth of cash injection too long. Right, right. So, Scott, officially, the reverse repo facility is a facility that allows commercial market participants to be a reverse repo in which the Federal Reserve itself is a re repo. So commercial bank, uh, banks, qu quote, sell, they, they uh, lend their treasuries to the Federal Reserve as if the Fed needs securities at all. And the Federal Reserve pays interest on it. So it's effectively, not really, but it's effectively a deposit. Uh, the, the opposite. So the, so the RRP is a reverse Sorry, repo yeah, facility. Yeah. Uh, I always get yeah, confused. Where it, you, you, had, you had all the mechanics, but it was just the opposite way. The market participants lend cash to the Fed. Yes. So, um, but, but everything else there was correct. So, so basically, so there's 2.1 trillion right now. We're, we're down 100 billion in the RRP in the last two weeks. Interesting. Um, 
So, so the RRP facility is 2.1 trillion right now. And as more securities come into the market, the repo market is gonna need more cash to finance those securities. So the money market funds that are giving cash to the Fed are gonna start giving that cash to the banks and broker dealers to take, to take treasuries that are coming into the market from balance sheet runoff and new treasury issuance. So as there's more treasury issuance and balance sheet runoff, it's gonna drain cash from the RRP. And that might take a year or so, but at some point, the RRP is gonna be down to zero after there are enough securities that came back into the market from, from balance sheet runoff, AKA quantitative tightening. So isn't it true though that money market funds can only buy short duration like treasury bills? So in order for, it's not as if, oh, they're taking their money out of the RRP and then they're plopping it into a 20 year treasury. They can only buy very short term, I think zero coupon bills, correct me if I'm wrong. So instead they have to lend it to the banks who then buy those longer duration securities. But that's a very messy process, which our mutual friend, Joseph Wang says, the the, the, the pipes are clogged. Yeah, so, um, so, so, so with, so with the money market funds, 2A7 funds, they, they, they can go out to a certain um, maturity. I know it used to be 15 months or something like that. I, I, I'm not exactly sure what it is now. But, but yeah, so money market funds can buy treasury bills. Um, but when they had money market fund reform back in 2015, 2016, 2017, um, a certain amount of money fund cash has to be uh, invested overnight. And anytime you have money market funds um, investing cash overnight, it's almost always going into the repo market. So, 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 so that turnover is, you know, money market funds have so much extra cash, they can't go to the banks and invest the cash in repo because the banks don't have enough balance sheet. So, or they don't have an, enough securities, you know, available to loan to the money market funds. So the money market funds um, therefore, instead, take their cash and they've been giving it to the Fed in the RRP program. But the mechanics of it is, as there's more treasury securities in the market with balance sheet runoff, is that the banks, and, and I don't know who owns these securities, it could be hedge funds, it could be parts of the bank, but the banks are going to have more U.S. treasury securities to finance in the repo market, so that the banks are going to offer the money market funds, well, the RRP rate right now that you get from the Fed is 380. The banks are going to have to start saying, um, we'll pay you 385 if you take that cash out of the Fed and give it to us because we have more securities now. We can, we can pay you a higher rate. Kind of right. Like so the official, Fed, the official Fed funds corridor is for Fed funds when they release their, their announcement at the FOMC meeting. Right now it's between 375 basis points and 4%. Uh, then the RRP rate, just a little bit about 380. So you're saying if commercial banks wants to take money from that facility, they got to go, oh, we'll do 385. But then we'll do, oh, 390, 395. So suddenly as money gets a little bit tighter and tighter, it goes up towards the top end of the corridor. Do you, uh, yeah, exactly. but, but then when so something, if it goes above the corridor and if it goes extremely above the corridor, uh, that's when you have a real sort of, uh, very much a tightness in the uh, repo market, which is what happened in September 2019. But in 2019, the Fed rolled out its repo facility and said, oh, we will lend uh, reserves to the banks. So do you think that the risk of a 2019 happening again is somewhat slim 
not because it wouldn't happen naturally, but because the uh, facility is there. Like, don't worry, the Fed has your back. Right, exactly. So in September 2019, there was no standing repo facility, SRF, um, which is just like the RRP facility, but the opposite. So in the standing repo facility, the Federal Reserve takes collateral from the market and gives the market cash. Um, and of course, it's just the primary dealers that are allowed to access the standing repo facility. So it is my prediction that at some point in the next year or two, the overnight general collateral repo rate, which is right at the bottom of the Fed Fund's target range, is going to be at the top of the, in the range because there's more supply of securities coming into the market. And then once it's at the top of the range, primary dealers are going to be taking securities from their customers and putting it into the putting them into the Fed each day in the standing repo facility. Now, so the standing repo facility is there and can absorb a lot of collateral um, from the market. And, and theoretically, that should eliminate the chance of a rate spike like we had in September 2019. However, um, with bank balance sheets that are restricted by Dodd-Frank with leverage ratios and special leverage ratios, SLR, um, there's times when banks kind of close down their balance sheets, and that tends to be on quarter end. So if there is going to be a rate spike, um, chances are, you know, it's going to be on a quarter end or a year end or something like that when, when banks do not, um, you know, will not be there to add balance sheet um, to pretty much support the market because they've got uh, leverage ratios that they have to meet. Hmm. There we go. That's and that, that's called the turn, right? That, that we call it the turn. There we go, the turn. All right. Well, what I want people at home to be doing is turning the pages of your book, The Money <laughs> News. Uh, put it on Very screen nice. again. It is an excellent book. Uh, you are at Curvature Securities, Scott. It's been an absolute pleasure. People can find your work. Um, uh, you are you are on Twitter at Scott Skirm, S K Y R M. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, talk soon. Great. Thank you. I, anytime. Let, let, let's do this again in six months and, and, and we'll see if uh, anything I said uh, was correct. I'd love to. I'd love to. Let's do it. Okay, great. Thanks. Thank you so much for watching. A few housekeeping items before I let you go. Subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro YouTube channel so you don't miss another episode of Forward Guidance. Uh, you can find Forward Guidance, the podcast you just listened to, on your favorite podcast app. That's Apple Podcast. Spotify, Overcast, Podbean. That's uh, Podbean as in on this pod, I've been saying that the Fed pivot is still far away. In addition, please check out today's sponsor. It really helps the show. Link is in the description. Thanks for watching.